years it had taken to get to this moment. The dust of this dry land rose with every footfall of the guide walking before him and glowed in a beautiful soft red in the sunset air. He was finally to meet the one he had long sought to see. The one was there quietly behind everything. They wound their way down a narrow lane that almost followed the curve of the mountain on which this city was built. This one he would soon see was not really a part of the story, and yet and yet, so much a part of all that had been accomplished. His guide suddenly stopped and looked up at a nondescript abode and then all around as if to make sure, he nodded and walked to a gate a rattling of the portal, a weight that seemed interminable, a conversation between the guide and a doorman, low so none could hear, and even more waiting. Finally, with a careful look up and down the constricted lane, the gatekeeper granted them entrance. They walked through a small courtyard and then a door was opened. His guide and the doorman both stood aside like guards at the entrance to the chamber of a king. But this was no palace, only a small Judean house where he had to stoop to enter. It was not where, but who that made this place so special. One step in, and there she was. This one about all who had ever heard the story wondered. She sat quietly, upright, Hands calmly together in her lap. He was frozen in the doorway. Unable, he felt, even to breathe. On her face, a smile made its appearance and slowly began to swell. And then an unexpected and yet melodious sound emanated from the center of her being. A chuckle. (laughs) So surprised and confused was he by this display of mirth that he could but step into the room, stand up straight, and blink twice. This only increased her merriment until she laughed outright. But graciously, she accepted him. Come, come, she said, as she indicated a seat at the small, low table with which these Israelis were so fond. Still more than a little filled with awe, he made no sound, but simply moved toward the cushions across from this petite woman. So slight was she, and yet... An involuntary shiver shook him as he thought of her part in this greatest of dramas. Clearly, she was accustomed to the reactions of the very few who were allowed to see her. What the Jewish leaders wouldn't do to stop the story with which she was so intimately involved. Indeed, what they wouldn't do to silence her. And yet joy permeated her soul. He was about to sit when she motioned to her left, Dr. Luke. I would like you to meet my son. Ah, this would be an extra bonus to interview also one of the brothers. He turned to the young man whom he only now fully realized was even there. As he stepped forward and began to extend his hand, suddenly in this dim light, he recognized him. Luke stopped in mid-stride. His heart began to beat wildly. He knew this one. He was at the council. This was not just any son. This was the son given to her by the son at the foot of the cross. 
the cross of Jesus, suddenly all that he knew, all that he had so long considered, all that he had believed seemed personified before him in these two. This woman had been there from the very beginning, the moment the Son of God had come into the world, into her womb. This young man had lived all Jesus' ministry. This is the one whom Jesus loved. Hers were the arms that held him when he was a baby. Hers, the voice that cried out with him in agony as he died. John had leaned back, oh, so nonchalantly against Jesus at the Last Supper. His soul was overrun. He, the learned doctor, was conquered by emotion. His knees buckled and he sank to the floor and he began to weep. These people had touched the Lord to whom Luke had dedicated his life. The glory was too much. The wonder overwhelmed him. He rocked back and forth as the tears flowed. And he wept out praise to God. All that he had believed was real. The truth was here, tangible before him. It was some time before he felt them next to him, they too, the apostle and the mother of Jesus, kneeling with him, praying and praising their Lord and Savior, the Son of God. If you could meet any New Testament character who had actually been with Jesus, who would it be? (laughs) Would you not have loved to be Luke interviewing Mary? To look into the eyes that looked into Jesus' eyes when he was a newborn babe in her arms. Maybe, it was probably not possible in that culture, but maybe touch the hands that caressed the face of her tiny Lord, her child. The hands that prepared so many meals for him when he was but a boy. What would you ask her? How would you get this reclusive woman, because clearly she was, to tell her side of the story. (laughs) Would you like to ask John, what did it look like when Jesus was literally glowing, transfigured right before your eyes? (laughs) Or maybe, John, what were you thinking when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb? I mean, (laughs) what were you thinking? (sighs) Would have been great. What would have been like to actually talk with those who knew the truth of the gospel firsthand. Those who actually heard the voice of Jesus speaking. Saw him give sight to the blind and ate food that miraculously came from his hand. Would would you like to talk to those people? How would our faith be encouraged by such conversations? The truth is, our faith can be upheld to the same degree as Luke's when we read the Scriptures. Let's look at his Gospel introduction and see why that is true. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There are four points, Luke says, to consider. First, other people have written about all that had been accomplished. Second, from where the information came. Then, what was Luke going to do? And last, why was Luke going to do that? Point one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, understand that this was no small event. People all over, both promoting and demeaning the ministry of Jesus and the growth of the church, wrote about all these events. Have you ever had anyone say, well, if Jesus was such a big deal, why are there only four records of his life? (laughs) I've heard that. I've actually had people say that to me. Can I just say that these are people who don't have any idea what they're talking about? (laughs) Do you realize how little we have from that time period? The entire first century. One expert said that if you stack all the literature of the first century still surviving and put them on a shelf, they'd take about 14 inches space. Total. Everything we have. That's all there is, but a surprising amount about that concerns Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) This is particularly odd in that everything happened in a tiny, pretty unimportant land. All Jesus' ministry happened in an area about the size of Grays Harbor County, Washington. Do you know that? Everything. In a land about the same importance, too. (laughs) Not terribly important. And yet the whole world was changed by these things that were accomplished there. Only four records? It's amazing that we have such in-depth information at all. And not just one record, but four. We have four. Nothing else like that in the first century. And there were, as Luke said, many other narratives but only those we recognize as being uniquely superintended by God were preserved. More on that as we progress. Note that these things were accomplished among us. You could say they were fulfilled. The things had a purpose, as does Luke's record of them. That too, We'll discuss that momentarily. So Luke's record, can we trust it? First, let's ask, From where did Luke get his information? Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. They saw eyewitnesses. They reported ministers. And then this was recorded by Luke in this case. So those three steps. But there there are some of us who talk, (laughs) gossip, (laughs) repeating the slightest thing without critically considering the facts. Don't trust anything you hear from that person. They're so gullible. <laughs> you know that. Some people just blather whatever they hear without ever considering whether or not it is true. <clears throat> I don't have a mirror here, but you know what I mean. We've all heard people do that about their like pet political issue. <laughs> you, you know, and we've all blathered on about our favorite political hot button. The truth is, we don't always really know the truth about those things. We have to trust the source from which it came. And let's admit it, we usually just decide what we want to believe, 
And then we trust the person that says that thing that we want to believe. <laughs> I mean, isn't that true? And, and hey, maybe they really are telling the truth. It could be. But that's not good enough for Luke. We need to go back to the people who actually saw this happen, is what he's saying. To talk with those who can actually tell us with certainty. I was there. I know. In research today, we'd say, let's go back to the source. The source documents, usually, in our case. Matthew, Mark, and John all wrote what they knew, what they experienced. Well, it appears Mark wrote for Peter, so what Peter knew. Luke says, let's go back and talk to as many of the people involved as we can who are now reporting these events and confirm what really happened. In other words, let's get eyewitness accounts. A few other points. He said those who from the beginning, Luke was not one of those, okay? He was, as a highly educated man, a careful researcher who knew how to get to the truth. But he didn't experience Jesus in person. And he was almost certainly a Gentile. The only non-Jew to contribute to the New Testament. So, so it's kind of fun to read Luke, read what he recorded, because he's one of us, you know. <laughs> Both as a Gentile and as one who didn't get to see Jesus himself. Those who from the beginning, well, what beginning? Pretty much everybody agrees he means from the start of Jesus' ministry. Although Luke goes back further, before John's and Jesus' con uh, conceptions and births even. In fact, at one point, all the way back to creation, but we'll see that over time later. He interviewed eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So certainly he means the apostles. Probably most of the 70, if you're familiar with the story, it'll come up as we go through Luke. And maybe most of the 120 at Pentecost. We're not exactly sure how many he interviewed, but certainly... Mary was among that number. Oh, and by the word, he just means the teaching about Jesus. Only John, and only as a hook at the beginning of his gospel, uses the word to mean the Son, to mean Jesus. Luke simply means the good news, the gospel, to use an old English expression. So, driven by the Holy Spirit, Luke trekked all over the area that Jesus walked, and much further, to interview many people because it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We, we kind of do things backwards around here sometimes. It seems like that. Uh, we've already studied the second work that Luke wrote. It's called the Acts of the Apostles in most of our Bibles. Some of this history he did witness himself. Some of that he did. And all of it he carefully researched. But Luke followed all things closely for some time. He's saying to his friend Theophilus, we'll get to him in a moment, I've done the work for you, Theo. You can trust what I say. Okay? Uh, obviously, our good Theophilus did trust him because he preserved the letter and probably paid to have many copies made and sent out to the churches. Well, when you read this, it is obvious the words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we'll, we'll discuss that later. Luke says his plan is to put an orderly account together. You gotta love orderly people. I do. I married one. <laughs> Those of us who are more do types than order types get a little frustrated by the compulsion to organize that these people have. You know, how can you get anything 
done when all you do is sort and systematize and stack stuff. It, it's a little frustrating sometimes, but the truth is there are some things we really want an organized person to do. When those medical technicians were preparing things so that the doctor could put a catheter all the way up into my artery and down through my heart, I, I was real glad to observe some very careful order to the process. Okay, that was a good thing. Uh, I, and I don't bring my tax paperwork to a guy who piles stuff like I do. Okay, that's <laughs> just get that clear. And if, and if you want a careful history of the ministry of Jesus, well, a doctor who's a bit uptight about getting things just right, uh, he's the man for the job. But many think Luke is also comparing his work to the work of the many who've already done this. Most of the records of Jesus' ministry available at that time, even though they were quite supportive, appeared to have been pretty fragmented, unconnected bits of what had happened. Luke, on the other hand, intends to and has prepared to give an orderly account, a full account also, you could say. Uh, not that he'll include everything, of course, that'd, that'd be impossible for anyone to do. He'll give selected samples of what happened, all that is necessary to understand the good news of Jesus Christ, true, but selected parts. Consistently throughout the Gospel, we'll see that Luke specifically includes representative examples of Jesus' teaching and parables and miracles, etc. Remember, it's all there for a purpose. Every piece of Luke's Gospel is there for a purpose. He's very careful. And it is our enviable task to find the purpose in each section. Oh, and ordered does not necessarily mean chronological. Okay? Remember, these are samples for us to grasp the scope of Jesus' life and work. So each set of pericopes, the selected stories, is a, is a unit within the whole of Luke's work. So parts of one set may occur after or before parts from another set. He's, he's not concerned about that. Uh, Luke's method of ordering may not be the same as ours. Well, yours, assuming you have one. So don't get too attached to our idea of order. You know, let Luke be Luke. And enjoy what the Holy Spirit guided him to write, a systematic history of Jesus' life and ministry. And now we can get to our friend Theo. The word means friend of God, one who loves God or is loved by God. So it could just be a title Luke uses to mean anybody who loves God. That some people actually believe that's what it means. But it's kind of, it's, well, actually it's very unlikely because the Greek words translated most excellent were used in much literature and documentation of that day to designate men in particular Roman offices. It was a particular title. So Theophilus, I'm sure, was a real person, actual person. So the question was, that his real name? <laughs> Well, first, all Romans had multiple names, so at the least, it was only one of his names. But it could be a nickname that those who knew him and his love for God used of him. Uh, remember the times. Being a Jesus freak back then could cost you your life. Certainly, a, a, your position could be in jeopardy. It might be that Luke used a nickname in the original written document just in case it fell into the wrong hands. In other words, he might be taking precautions to protect his friend. And you know, that's just the sort of thing you'd expect a careful, ordered person to do, isn't it? But regardless, this is a real person with real position who really believed. 
We know he believed because of Luke's purpose statement that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Christianity doesn't say, close your eyes and believe, but rather, check it out for yourself. One commentator said, Christianity is believed and confirmed or reaffirmed by facts. This is an invitation to understanding in faith. And who could better test the validity of these claims, like those that Luke made, than that first generation? When Peter wrote, For we did not follow clearly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We is the first century polite way to say I. <laughs> he doesn't want to brag here, so he says we. Peter says, I did not follow cleverly devised myths when I made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I was on the mountain that was made holy because Jesus was transfigured. He shone like the sun before my eyes. That's what he's saying. I saw this. Anyone could go and look Peter in the eye to see if he was telling the truth. <laughs> John wrote of himself, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Want to know whether I'm writing truth? Check me out to see who I am, and you'll know that what I write is true. That's what John said. And there are other ways to confirm truth. After a huge uproar in Thessalonica caused by a group of unbelieving Jews, Paul and Silas were sent to Berea and taught in the synagogue there. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men. They were more noble because they were willing to check it out. Is it a good thing to question Christianity? It's a good thing to question, question Christianity. The Jews in Thessalonica should have, instead of rejecting the teaching outright. But are not all who ever believed part of those who, Luke said, have been taught? Is it true, aren't we? If we've been taught by the Scriptures... Should we not examine these scriptures and consider the witnesses? One of the early letters Paul wrote was to those who did believe in Thessalonica. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers." Unlike those other guys, when Paul was standing in front of them teaching them, they knew it was the Word of God. Speaking, not reading the Word of God. So they had the oral Word of God as opposed to the written, which we have now. We need to discuss how truth was disseminated in that time. Remember, no laser printers. <laughs> it's not easy to print things. No mass production of books, anything, nothing like that. 
Everything was individually hand-copied, one copy at a time. And that took too much time for all but the most important of documents. Besides, none of the New Testament was written yet when Paul was teaching them, not one word. You can't copy what you don't have. So, like in many parts of the world today, teaching was very precise. When they taught orally, it was, it was down to the word. When a person taught a certain subject, it was always with exactly the same words. In fact, all the apostles in Jerusalem, remember, they all originally taught together when it first started. They were all in Solomon's portico together. They were all teaching right together, right next to each other. Uh, and they hashed out exactly how do we teach? What are the important things? What things do we need to say to people? What can we skip? What do we have to tell them? They hashed all that out, everything in Jesus' ministry, and they did it word by word. So then they all went out and spread the exact teaching. They were very precise in these things. The process probably took years to develop, but the accuracy was tremendous in oral teaching. Uh, just as it is with oral traditions all over the world today. I've told before of a story in a secular art magazine about a group of people who had this elaborate story uh, that they told. And there was no written. They had, they had had a written language, but they lost it. Well, archaeology years later found some of their ancient written documents and they found that story that was exactly the same to the word after a thousand years. And, it, and nothing of the importance of Scripture. Oral tradition is extremely strong in most of the world. We just don't understand that part. But this is the Word of God. <laughs> and they understood the importance of getting it right, so it was even more important. We have the Word of God in written form today. Can we trust the words of the Bible? The words of Luke. Somewhere around the time Luke was writing... Peter addressed the same issue. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke and wrote as the Holy Spirit carried them along. In other words, it was real people who wrote these words addressing real issues of other real people. Every word of the Scriptures was written to somebody specifically or a particular group of people. That's what the human authors were doing. But the Holy Spirit was carrying them along so that the words are profitable for us even though they weren't written specifically to us. Which answers that common objection. To err is human, so how can books and letters written by humans be without error? Have you ever seen little children held by their mom or their dad as they walk somewhere. <laughs> okay, Who keeps them from error? Do they keep themselves from falling? From walking into the puddle? <laughs> Just so the Holy Spirit assured that each word was exactly what He desired. So, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every bit of Scripture works for, is profitable for, us. Teaching and training, reproving and correcting, and thus equipping us for the good works which God has prepared for us. That which we are to do for God, we can learn to do 
only through and assuredly through the Scriptures. We can learn how to live like Christ by reading Luke's careful account of how the Son in human form lived and died and rose again. Some have said that belief in the Scriptures as inerrant puts them on too high a pedestal. Kid you not, some people say that people begin to think of the Bible as more important than Christ. You know, how ridiculous. First, Christ cannot be known except through the Scriptures. How else are you going to know Him? You can't worship Christ if you don't know anything about Him. And what you know, you must know with certainty. We could do what we do with politics, you know, believing what we want to believe and simply finding that what it, that agrees with it. Or we could check out what God said to confirm and reinforce our faith. The very scriptures we read draw us closer to Christ. Do you ever wonder if people who make silly claims like, oh, you might trust scripture more than Christ. Do they even read their Bibles? I always wonder that. <laughs> or is it maybe that they just don't get it? That they can't understand the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The key to this is, does not accept. They can't get it because they don't accept the things of the Spirit. Like, say, the inerrancy of Scripture. You know, science says, well, modern psychology understands and human knowledge has advanced to where, I, you know, I've heard all those. They know what the words mean. <laughs> but because they can't accept the possibility of inerrancy in this case, folly, you know, they're not able to understand the import of the words. Sadly, very sadly, some who think they are Christians will find that they never got it. Not sure that's true? Listen to the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They were doing miracles, or thought they were, or said they were. And they never understood it wasn't by the Spirit of God. Because they would not accept God's Word. That God's Word is the only thing of which we can be absolutely certain. As Jesus' half-brother James said, Be doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Do great things in your name. Now, Jesus will say, you worked lawlessness. You were not the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Sitting in churches all over the world today, are those who hear the word, but don't do it. They don't live by it. 
a person like that may be on a path to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. But if they're still breathing, (laughs) it doesn't have to be that way. And please, anyone hearing my voice, don't let it be you who only hears. Listen to the teaching of Scripture. If a wicked person turns away from all his sin that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Do we not want assurance that we will have eternal life? Then, if God's Word says it, do it! You know, Live by the Word of God. It was written that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Our own selves, we're not going to be inerrant, not in this life. We won't always live as we believe, but we can have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. We don't have to sit in awe before Mary or John as Luke did. We can know that even though every bit of Scripture was composed by human hands, It was, each and every word, breathed out by the Holy Spirit as he moved those along in their writing. We can trust the Scriptures. And we can, with his help, live by them. Until that day when we can laugh with Mary, embrace John, and consider all these things with Luke. That day is coming. We will get to do that going to be fun. I think it'll be a thousand years or ten before we finally remember everybody else is there because I think Jesus is going to be pretty overwhelming. But but there will be a day when we get to be with them. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. Luke took the time as a human person just walking this earth knowing it's true. He believed with his heart and he said, I need to get every bit of data I can get. And I need to write this out carefully so others can believe. Now, he might have had Theophilus alone in mind at first, but I kind of think he was well aware that other people would read the document, other people would be encouraged by it. don't know if he thought of anything two millennia later with us in a little teeny town in a little teeny place, no bigger than where Jesus walked. But... He knew who He loved and Your Holy Spirit guided Him and we now have His words that we can trust. So as we work our way through those words over over the next, I don't know, year or whatever it takes us, help us to know what it is we need to learn from these. Help us as we read all the words of Your Scripture to not just hear them, but do them. Because then we will be assured that we are Yours when we are driven to action by your will. Thank you, Father, for all you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You remember I read that part about Peter talking about how he was up on the mountain and he was he saw you you I saw these things. I saw Christ transfigured he before me. He then says, We ourselves have heard this very voice from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. More sure 
than seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain is the Word of God. So when we read about the Last Supper in the Scripture, that's more sure, Peter said, than my seeing Jesus transfigured. <laughs> wow. That's, I'm sorry, that's a big deal. When somebody glows like the sun so bright you can't even look at them, I'm pretty sure that would be a big deal to me. That would be pretty sure to me. And Peter says, that isn't the sure thing. The sure thing is the Word. That's the sure thing. 